Okay, 2 Kings chapter 13. We'll look at just verses 1 through 9 today, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop every couple of verses and explain a couple of things to you and, and go from there. It says, In the 23rd year of Judah's king Joash, son of Ahaziah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. Let me tell you real quick about what the sins of Jeroboam are. We studied Jeroboam a long time ago. It's been a while since we've been there. But Jeroboam, what he did is he built... Um, so you remember, Israel and Judah are no longer the same kingdom. They've split. The problem this is for the Israelites is that Jerusalem, where the temple is, is in Judah, right? Okay, so the Israelites, because they're no longer part of the same country, now have issues to go and worship at the temple. So Jeroboam, who knows if it was with the right mindset or not, he builds, guess most likely wrong concept, he builds two golden calves and he places them in the cities of Dan and Bethel. And they were meant to serve as sites for the Israelites to go and worship God at. So he said, you can't go to Israel, you can't go to Jerusalem, I'm sorry. And so just go to these two sites and there you can offer sacrifices to God. Well, this was sin for two main reasons. First of all, Jeroboam had broken the second commandment, right? He had made two figures to worship God instead of going to the temple. You, you know, God said, you can't make a man-made image to worship me through. So he broken that. Second of all, God commanded the Israelites to worship him at the temple. It was there that they were to offer sacrifices, not somewhere else. And so the sins of Jeroboam are just trickling down in Israel because they are no longer in many ways worshiping the one true God because they are now worshiping these bulls that are set up for them to look at. And it says that he continued to walk in them and it says he did not turn away from them. So it makes you think that the conscience was sitting his heart and he still continued in that sin. Now look at verse 3. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to King Hazael of Aram and to his son Ben-Hadad during their reigns. So because they are in sin and they are walking in sin, God's anger burns against them and he hands them over to the armies of Aram. One commentator said that the Israelites should not have been surprised that this, has happened, that this happened because God told them that if they did not obey, he would cause them to fall to their enemies. Just read all throughout the, the first four books of the Old Testament and you see that truth over and over again. If you do not follow my ways, bad things will happen. He, he went on to say this. He said, people still believe Satan's lie that you will not surely die. Let me tell you where he's, getting with, where he's coming with this. If we go back to the garden again, remember Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and they're walking with God. Things are really, really good. And God says, look, you can have anything here in the garden. Just don't eat of that tree because if you eat of that tree, you'll die. Well, not long after that, the serpent slithers his way into the garden and he talks to Adam and Eve and he said, this is, you know, my paraphrase, okay, Justin paraphrase. God didn't say that. What are you, no, you just misheard him. That's not what he said. You're, you're not going to die if that happens. No, God just doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he doesn't want you to eat from that tree. Well, what do we know happened because they ate of the tree? 
death and sin entered into the world. It's amazing how we can justify things in our heart to where we say, okay, I know that's the rule, but surely that's not really what they said, right? Surely that's not really what's going to happen. My mom is in town, and on this point, I called her earlier today, and I said, Mom, I need you to give me a story of Taylor and I where you gave us very clear instructions, and we blew them off, and then bad things happened anyways. I mean, there's probably no shortage of stories to walk through from when we were younger, but she brought up, she reminded me of a story when we were, um, when we were younger, we were at the beach. I was 16, Taylor was 13, and, or I guess 14, and where we were staying to get to the beach, you had to ride across this like major bridge in which you had cars coming from both directions. You had to cross this major intersection to go to the beach. Well, us being young guys, where there was a group of us, we said, hey, we can just ride our bikes over there. There's going to be no problem at all. My mom looked at us and said, Justin, do not ride across to that side. It's dangerous. Do not let your brother ride across there. It is not safe. And if you try to do it, you're going to get in trouble. Well, me as the wiser, older brother that I am, I looked at my brother, my brother, younger brother Taylor, and I said, Taylor, Mom's not going to do anything, okay? Like, she's not going to get on to us. Nothing's going to happen, I promise. It's going to be perfectly fine if we just go across to the water. Well, we had to leave before, we left before my brother, so terrible older brother right there, and he by himself is riding across the bridge, finally finds us, and when we're journeying back, Taylor's chain breaks on his bicycle, and he goes flying over the top of the handlebars and just mauled his legs, you can imagine, he's just in a bathing suit, and if you've ever hit pavement and gravel with pavement, just tore up his legs in the process of it. So we now are walking our bikes back to the house that we're staying at, and as we get closer to the house, we look, and my mom is standing on the front porch as there is blood pouring down my brother's legs, you know, as closer that we get. And all we can see in our minds is, I guess my mom was right when she said, do not try to go across the bridge. I myself am saying, no, look, that's, uh, it's not really that big of a deal. There are consequences to our actions. <laughs> and it was not pretty for my brother and I when we made it back across the bridge as well. You see, they're doing the same thing. They're thinking, look, I can just get away with this. And God says no, and his anger burns against them, and he sends the army to them. But then we see something interesting. In verse 4, it says, Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor, and the Lord heard him. For he saw the oppression of the king of Ar that the king of Aram inflicted on Israel. Isn't it interesting that God has just this special heart for his people? And then when we cry out to him, he listens and he responds. Verse 5, Therefore the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, and they escaped from the power of the Arameans. Then the people of Israel returned to their former way of life. But they didn't turn away from their sins that the house of Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Jehoahaz continued in them, and the Asherah pole also remained standing in Samaria. Jehoahaz did not have any ar an army left except for 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, because the king of Aram had destroyed them, making them like dust at threshing. The rest of the events of Jehoahaz's reign, along with all of his accomplishments and his might, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. Jehoahaz rested with his ancestors, and he was buried in Samaria, and his son Jehoash became king in his place. In this passage, if you notice, you see God responds, he listens to them, he sends them a warrior to save them, and then after they are saved, what does it say? They went back to what they were doing. 
See, the story, in the story, we see Jehoaz exhibit something that we call crisis faith or foxhole faith. Maybe you've heard it that way. Because what do we see him do? He worships the golden calves and then trouble comes upon them. And as soon as trouble comes upon him, he then turns to the Lord for help. Only when things are going bad. Now, look, there's a truth in this. And the truth, the first truth I want to give you is that there is, the truth is some people do turn to the Lord when they are desperate and when crisis is happening. They do turn to the Lord and, and God answers them. Psalm 107, you see this happen here when David is talking about the sailors that are lost at sea. He says, rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. We see it happen, right? That that God, when we are in crisis, we cry out to God and God responds. I've seen plenty of stories where that has happened in people's lives. They're in the middle of crisis, that they are desperate in that moment. They cry out to God, and God works in their life. This past week, um, in our small group, one of the girls in there told us the story. Um, She gave me permission to tell the story of her dad. And she said that her dad and her did not have a great relationship when she was growing up. He was arrogant, he was angry, and he left her and her siblings when they were a young age. And for most of her life, she had no relationship with her father. But a couple years ago, her father had a major medical crisis when he was in the hospital and actually died on the hospital table while they were there. But when he came back to life, he told them this incredible story. He said that when he woke up after he had died on the table, he said that he claimed that he saw the light of Jesus and Jesus told him that it wasn't his time to go then and that his life was to change. His life had to change, and he needed to believe in him. So a few months after that moment, he was baptized, and she will be the first to tell you that he's been following the Lord ever since. She said her dad is a fundamentally different person now. And it's not only that she has a relationship with her dad, but her kids have a relationship with her dad now. You see, God does work in desperation, and sometimes desperation can draw a person to the Lord, and a genuine, healthy faith can emerge. But honestly, the truth is, when you look at Christ's faith, more likely than not, it tends to be weak and short-lived. Why is that? Why is it that Christ's faith tends to be weak and short-lived? Can I give you two reasons today? First of all, Christ's faith tends to be short-lived because it's shallow and it's easily uprooted. When I was studying for this, I came across a tree called the blue spruce tree. Maybe you've seen one before. You find them most of the time in Colorado or the state of Washington or, or mostly cooler areas where it will grow. It's a beautiful tree. People use it in their houses for Christmas trees. Um, they'll plant them in their backyards. Um, They grow really fast, can grow to 50 to 75 feet tall, but they have one major problem. They fall very easily. I actually found a story in November of 2015 in the city of Spokane, Washington. A major windstorm came through the city, and it uprooted all of these blue spruce trees, and they went flying into people's windows of their houses and in their cars and on top of their cars. I mean, could you imagine these massive trees like missiles coming at you, you know, with this windstorm. It's crazy. And they attributed to their ease of following, falling in the story to two problems. They said, first of all, they root in shallow soil. 
And then second of all, they have such dense foliage that it acts as a sail so that when the wind comes, it just catches all of the wind. And because it has shallow roots, it easily comes out of the ground and goes flying. It's a scary thing. You see, it's those two very problems that lead to the uprooting of Christ's faith. Why? Because Christ's faith oftentimes does not grow deep in the Lord, but it sprouts quickly, leaving the roots in a shallow, you know, mainly just rooted in passion and emotion, right? And then that very same passion and emotion that they're rooted in is the very thing that makes the foliage of the person thick and big. I mean, they're excited. They're excited to tell people about Jesus, excited to tell people about what God did in their life or he brought them out of something. But there's a problem. While the excitement might be there and, you know, there's a lot of foliage there in the person's life, the roots are not deep. And so as soon as the first windstorm comes in their life, what happens? They fall over and then you end up not seeing them ever again. Can I tell you when I made a really bad choice of using someone who had shallow roots in an illustration of a story? About, gosh, a year and a half ago, on a Wednesday night, I used the story of Kanye West to build my point in the story. If you ever use the story of Kanye West, you automatically fail. Let's just be honest right there, okay? But at this point, Kanye West had changed his life. He had just made this like Christian album. Um, I was so excited to see that Kanye was following Jesus. If you've kept up with Kanye's life, that man ain't no longer following Jesus, okay? <laughs> as soon as the bad things happen, you know, the breakup between him and Kim happened, it just kind of threw him for a loop, and all of a sudden, his life starts falling apart again. Why? Because, I mean, look, I mean, he was wanting to follow Jesus. All of a sudden, it sprouted up big. He's passionate about it, making an album, but because it was not rooted deep, as soon as the first storm came in his life, it was blown over on the side. That happens often when it comes to shallow faith. But there's another reason that shallow faith easily falls over. And it's because Christ's faith is typically me-centered and not God-centered. It's me-centered and not God-centered. Christ's faith says, God, if you do this for me, I will give my life for you. You know, it's, you see, it's, it's focused on yourself and not God. It's a faith that only works when it's benefiting you, Right? Warren Wearsby, he said this about the passage. Once people see hope of deliverance and their pain eases up, they forget the Lord and return to their old ways until the next crisis. Have you seen that in people's lives? That maybe it's the hospital room, and in that hospital room they say, this is going to be the place where I choose to follow Jesus. And as soon as things get good again, you never see them again in church or in Sunday school. See, Christ's faith says, God, what can you give to me instead of God? What can I give to you? There's two different kinds of faith there. Christ's faith in this way tends to treat God like an insurance policy. So here's what it means. You buy this insurance policy and you've got it. And maybe you're like me and you're grateful for it. And it's going good and going good. And all of a sudden you've had nothing happen to your house. In f and I've lived in my house for eight years. Literally nothing's happened to it. And I begin to ask myself, why do I got this insurance policy anyways? Literally nothing's happened in my house. <laughs> but then all of a sudden a hailstorm comes around and that roof gets some dents in it. And then your friend comes and quotes you how much it would cost to get a new roof on your house. And you say, thank you, thank you Lord, for the insurance policy, right? When that moment happens. That's how we often teach, that's how Christ's faith works. 
That when things are going good, you say, God, I don't need you, but you definitely want it when the, when the storm hits your life. The question then is, how in the world do we go from having crisis faith to real faith, to deep-rooted faith? I think you can, I can sum it up in a sentence. Faith, real faith, must be treated more like a lifestyle change and less like a diet. Faith must be treated more like a lifestyle change and less like a diet. Let me give you a definition of both of these real quick, and I think they'll probably be somewhat humorous and then also understandable. First, diets. What are diets? Diets are major adjustments to how we live for a short period of time so that we might see immediate results, right? Major adjustments to change all these things, right, for a short period of time so that we might see immediate results. Well, what's a lifestyle change? A lifestyle change is minor adjustments for a long period of time so that we might see long-lasting results. It's two very different things. I was recently listening to a health podcast. Believe it or not, I do care a little bit about health, okay, just to make that clear. I do go to the gym occasionally, and I enjoy it. But uh, I was listening to this health podcast, and they were talking about this very subject. And they said this. They said the biggest problem that we have in getting healthy today is that we go into a diet with our minds solely set on a goal that we want to accomplish. Now, goals are good. But they said, here's what happens. We go into it and we say, I want to lose 25 pounds. That's it. That's what I, the only reason I'm doing this is because I want to lose 25 pounds. So here's what we do. We work our tails off. We eat less than we ever have. We exercise more than we ever have in our entire life in a span of about three weeks. It's all forced in there. And then we get to that goal and we're like, we did it. <laughs> I did it. Now I get to go back to eating pizza and donuts because I finally got those 25 pounds off. That's how we treat a diet, isn't it? You know, it's this extreme thing that we do for a short period of time thinking that that's going to change everything about us. It doesn't. Here's what he said. He said, the problem is that we spend more time, I love this, the problem is we spend more time asking ourselves, what do I have to do to get to the goal? And not enough time asking, who is the person that I want to become? Do you see the difference between those two? See, our faith oftentimes works in the same way. Here's what we do sometimes. We come to the new year. And we say, this is going to be the year that I follow Jesus. I'm going to read through the entire Bible, maybe even do it twice. I'm going to memorize 50 verses of scripture. I'm going to pray for an hour a day. Because at the end of the year, if I do those things, then I am going to be the Christian that I need to be. And you put all that pressure on yourself to cram all those things into your life. And you make it a month and a half. And you go, what in the world was I thinking? <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Do you see what that is? That is major adjustments in order to see immediate results. What if, what if instead we began with something like this? Jesus, I just want to be the kind of person who walks daily with you. Do you see the difference of that? I just want to be a person that walks daily with you. You see, that's an identity statement. That is a rooted faith statement, and that's a statement that you can build your faith upon. Because when your mindset ends, when you come into it and says, this is the kind of person that I want to be, then you begin to see Bible reading not as just an accomplishment of a goal, but as time spent with Jesus. Prayer becomes less of just an accomplishment of saying, I got this out of the way, but it becomes a way to communicate with Jesus. Scripture memory goes from just a place to memorize words, but it becomes a way to write the word on your heart so that you might spend more time with Jesus. And it's that kind of mindset, that kind of deep-rooted, lifestyle-changing faith that can help your roots grow deep 
so that when the storms of life come, you can hang on to the rock of your salvation and the defender of your faith. And you're not thwarted when the hard, th- hard times happen. That's the kind of faith we want. Not crisis faith that's easily toppled over, but deep-rooted faith that comes from the identity that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we love you so much. And we thank you for the chance that we get to study your word. God, give us real faith. Let us want to be like you. Not just do a lot of things, but really truly be with you. And as we grow closer to you, you'll make us more like you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.